Hi, my name is Michael Tuck, and I am the associate pastor here at Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. We are a local church in Surrey, Virginia, dedicated to making disciples of Jesus Christ. This is the weekly podcast that we put out for our local church family and the church as a whole. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. We're going to continue to worship the Lord, and we're going to worship the Lord through the study of His Word. This is an act of worship. This is still the continuation. We're just saying, here I am to worship. And worship is praise. It is singing. He loves to hear our voices sing. Um, but, uh, but worship is also the study of His Word. John chapter 1. Times are changing. And uh, how quickly they are changing. Seems like to me times have been changing pretty drastically since the 1950s, but the last two decades have brought about unprecedented speed of change in our culture. I I would say uh, exponentially things are changing in our culture. Some of those changes have been for good but some of them not so much. The Christian apologist Rabbi Zacharias says of these days in which we're living, he says, we are living in a time when philosophically you can believe anything so long as you do not claim it to be true. Morally, you can practice anything so long as you do not claim that it is a better way. Religiously, you can hold to anything so long as you do not bring Jesus Christ into it. Now, indeed, we said, we said this a couple of weeks ago when we remembered the killings there at uh, Virginia Tech. Do you remember the ecumenical service they had where they had the Buddhist, I believe, and they had, the, they had a, a Christian and they had a Muslim, I believe. But, but throughout that whole ecumenical service, the name of Jesus was, was never mentioned. Indeed, almost all religion is tolerated in our land, and we could even say honored except for the Lord Jesus. And I, uh, I think this is important because, listen, the most influential person in all of history, I believe, is the Lord Jesus. I, I think Time Magazine got it right five years ago when they said that Jesus is, out of the top 100 people in all of history, he was the most influential. And and I would say, yes, they got it right, though not everybody agrees. Some people put Jesus at second or third, or I think even lower on the most influential people in all of history. But all of time, as we know it, you can call it whatever you want, but all of time is divided between the advent of, of Jesus coming, prior to his coming, and then after his coming. Now, Napoleon Bonaparte, who was, you know, the guy who tried to take over all of Europe, he he was, uh, I I did some reading on Napoleon this week because I'm going to quote him here. He he wasn't a really good guy. Uh, He was somewhat egotistical. He was definitely manipulative. He was power hungry and control hungry. But, But this is what Napoleon said about Jesus. He said, I know, and I quote, I know men, and I tell you that Jesus Christ is no mere man. Between him and every person in the world, there is no possible term of comparison. Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne, and I have founded empires, but on what did we rest the creations of our genius? Do you get the impression Napoleon was pretty full of himself, right? 
He says, upon force. What's the genius of our empires? It's force. He says, Jesus Christ founded his empire upon love. And at this hour, millions of men would die for him. He went on to say, superficial minds see a resemblance between Christ and the founders of empires and the gods of other religions. That resemblance does not exist. There is between Christianity and other religions the distance of infinity, unquote. Now, why Napoleon said all that, if he's just trying to manipulate, I don't know. But, but I think he got it right in his description of the Lord Jesus. C.S. Lewis tried to argue for the person of Jesus in this way, and I quote him, I am trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level of the man who says he's a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up as a fool, you can spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, in your Bibles, we're going to study the book of John. It's the fourth book of your New Testament. Turn to the 20th chapter of John, verse 30. At the end of his book, here's what John says about the book we're going to be studying. He says in verse 30, he says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written. In other words, there's so much more I could have put in this book that I'm writing. But these things that I have written, I have written them so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God, and that you that by believing that and that believing you may have life in his name. So in other words, John wrote this book with the expressed intention of seeking to convince you that Jesus was the Jewish promised king. Now, all the way back to Abraham, God had been promising that he would bless the nations through Israel. And he had been promising this king, which the Bible calls the anointed one or Messiah, or if, you're, if you know Greek, he calls him Christ. Christ wasn't Jesus' last name. Christ was his title. He was Messiah. He was the anointed king that the Old Testament promised. And John says, I'm writing this book so that you might believe that Jesus is the Old Testament promised king that God has promised all along. But he goes on more and he says, and I am writing this so that you might believe that he is the son of God. So John carries it a step further. He's saying, I don't just want you to believe he's the promised coming king. I want you to believe that he's the son of God, that he's the most influential person that has ever lived. Now, over 100 times in his gospel and writings, John is going to mention the word believe. 100 times he's going to challenge us to believe. But there's more. Notice that John says, I'm writing this so that you might believe that Jesus is this, so that by believing you might have eternal life in his name. 
I think it's safe to say that John desired that at the end of this book, every one of us might fall to our knees and do like, John, like Thomas did at the end of this book, as we'll see in a few months from now, many months from now. We will see Thomas fall on his knees and say, my Lord and my God to Jesus. John is writing this so that every one of us will do the same so that we will fall to our knees and say, say, you are Lord and you are God. This morning as we embark on this study, and it's going to take us a while, but I, I just want to be honest and upfront. I, I want you to believe that Jesus is the king. And then I want you to believe that Jesus is the son of God. And in great part, I chose this book to study and I have a confession to make. I'm going to make it. I should just keep it to myself, but I can't ever do that. And here's my confession. I didn't think I'd ever studied through John. <laughs> oh, my memory. I didn't think I'd ever done this. I found out I did it 13 years ago. So if, you, if, you've, been, if you've not been here in the last 13 years, you're, you're good, right? This is all going to be new. And if you've been here in the last 13, if you've been here more than 13 years, I promise you I'm going to seek to make it new. I'm not going to look at my old stuff, right? So uh, it's, going to be, it's going to be new for us as well. But, but I chose this book when I chose it because I want you to believe so that you might have eternal life. That's what John says, and that believing in him, you might have eternal life. Man, I want you and me to have life everlasting. I don't want to stay dead in my grave. I don't want the grave to be my last moment. I want to rise from my grave. I want to live again. And John says, listen, if you believe in this son of God, you shall live again. And you shall be granted immortality and life with God in a realm that he's planning for everyone who puts their faith in him. I mean, that's what God desires for you. And that's what I desire for, for you as well. Now, I know that I'm preaching to many of you that already follow Jesus. You're already believing Jesus that he might give you life and that he might work in your life today. So here's what I want for you. I want you to come away from this study loving Jesus all the more. I want you to come away from this time in John's gospel so convinced of the coming resurrection, but not just that, so convinced that Jesus is the lover of your soul, that Jesus is the one you need to give your life to and you need to follow him and serve him with every ounce of your being. That's what I desire for those of us that already know him. John's gospel is unique amongst the four first books of the New Testament. If you happen not to know much about the New Testament, and this is maybe you're, maybe you're exploring Christianity, here's what I want you to know. The first four books of the New part of the Bible, which is it's divided into two parts, but the first four books are about the life of Jesus. And the first three of those books are called the synoptic gospels. And the reason for that is that they are a synopsis of the life of Jesus, and, and they mark the events and happenings of Jesus' life. They are the miracles that he performed and the places that he went in his earthly history while he was here. And actually, they're the, they're the first books recording that for us. Mark's gospel is believed to be the first New Testament writing written around 55 AD, maybe 25 years after Jesus died. John is one of the last writers of the New Testament in all of his books. They're written towards the end. They're written after, uh, after the fall of Jerusalem. 
Most people believe that John wrote this book of John, this gospel, this good news of, of John from the city of Ephesus when he's serving as a pastor in that city. And he may have written this book after the Revelation. He may have written it after the Revelation, the last book of your Bibles, which he also wrote. And he quite possibly wrote this in the 90s. In other words, towards the very end of the first century, John may have penned, uh, may have penned his gospel. It's not like the other ones. 90% of what we have in John's gospel is not recorded in any of the previous three. 90% of this material is going to be new, not found in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And in John's gospel, we don't find much of what's in the others. There, there's no birth account. There, there's nothing, very little about his life. There, there is no baptism of Jesus. There's no temptation of Jesus. There's no transfiguration. There's no agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. There is no ascension into heaven. There are no parables that I could remember. This book is about the teaching of Jesus and what he said. And again, remind you, John's purpose is that you might believe that Jesus is this king, this anointed Messiah Christ. He is this king, but he's also the son of God. And so John is writing this so that, that you might believe, and he's coming about it very, very differently. In this book, John never uses his name. You do not find the name of John written in the you find it, you do find his name in the other gospels. You, you don't find it here. Instead, he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. Many people have said, man, John, you are an arrogant cuss. You know, how can you say that about, about yourself? And, and let's just face it, maybe it was his arrogance that wrote, that caused him to write that he was the disciple that Jesus loved. But I think there's another suggestion that's equally plausible. Maybe it was his humility. And I'm going to prefer to assign his humility to the reason why he calls himself this. Maybe he doesn't want to be annotated as the author. Maybe he doesn't want to use his name and say, I'm writing this book. Instead, maybe he just designates himself by how he feels about Jesus, that Jesus loves me. And, and maybe John is not trying to say, Jesus loves me, and he doesn't love anybody else. Maybe he's not trying to say, Jesus loves me better than the other disciples. Maybe he's just simply saying, maybe he's just simply saying, this is how I feel about my relationship with Jesus. He loves me. Anyway, one day you can ask him. Hopefully you'll be able to ask him. John and his brother James are fishermen by, uh, by trade, by family trade. Their father Zebedee was a fisherman. Their mother's name is Salome or Salome. And, and Salome, let me call her Salome. Salome, there is a Salome that watched Jesus die at the cross. And she is, and she has told us, she is said to be the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. So if this Salome is the same Salome that, that was at the cross, and, and quite possibly she was, because remember, John was at the cross, okay? Maybe John and Jesus are first cousins because Mary and Salome are sisters. That's a possibility. Maybe they're first cousins. The two brothers were not always known for kindness. They were called early on in the ministry of Jesus, the sons of thunder. And you'll remember that when some people disrespected Jesus, they both got together and said, Jesus, you want us to call down fire and burn them up? And uh, so they were, they were called sons of thunder. But Jesus would transform John's life so that in history, John is known as the apostle of love. Now, let me, let me just say something here. 
Jesus is always in the business of transforming our lives. You know, we, we like to think that the transformation in our life is why Jesus loves us. Or we, maybe we somehow begin to think that because of the transformation in my life, that's why Jesus is going to save me. That's why Jesus is going to give me eternal life with him, raise me from the dead. Maybe it's because I have been transformed and I'm living differently than I was. And, and, and I tell you what, folks, if, if that's how you think and that's how you feel, you've totally misunderstood but having said that, Jesus never saves us, that he doesn't transform us. And for some of us, the transformation of Jesus being becoming like him takes place, I mean, instantaneously almost. We begin to change, and, and we take leaps and bounds in this transformation. Some of us, it's baby steps, and it's just slow. But listen, there's not a single person that Jesus saves that he doesn't transform. So if you're claiming to belong to Jesus and you look at your life and you say, well, there's no transformation in my life, then, then I would say, step back, ask yourself, man, do I really belong to Christ? Because Jesus always transforms us. And Jesus transformed the son of thunder into the apostle of love. More than 80 times in his writings, John would appeal to, to love and loving kindness and loving your brethren and loving God. Matthew, the book, was written to convince the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. You know, because he starts with the genealogy and rolls it all the way through King David. Mark, who seeks to present Jesus as the servant, jumps right into Jesus' servant ministry, right? Doesn't even go to his birth, just talks about Jesus serving. Luke, who wants to convince you that Jesus is the Son of God, also starts with his birth, and, and he talks about the miraculous nature of his birth. John goes even further back. And he starts his gospel, not with the birth of Jesus, but Jesus before Bethlehem. The title of this message is Jesus before Bethlehem, Jesus before his birth. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overpower it. Jesus doesn't start with the birth of Jesus. He starts with the preexistence of Jesus, because Jesus existed before Bethlehem. No one is greater, and no one is grander than Jesus. Now, before we actually look at the text, let me, let me just talk just a moment about an, an opening literary device that John uses in his book. I, I did a lot of reading this week on, on literary devices because, uh, you know, English was my tough subject. I did good at math, but not so well at English. So you English teachers, and we have a number of teachers in our gathering this morning, so you come and correct me afterwards. Don't correct me now. All right. So anyway... <laughs> There are, a lot of, there are a lot of literary devices. There's over 30 of them, I understand, like allegory and illusion and foreshadowing. And as best I can tell, John is using the literary device of suspense. He begins talking about the word. He identifies the word as a person early on, but it's not until verse 17 that he actually identifies who he's talking about from verse 1 until then. 
And so in verse 17, he actually tells us the person who is the word, and he tells us that the person is Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christ, Jesus the Son of God. And so he keeps the reader in suspense. So I think he's employing the literary device of suspense as he begins his book. And that may not be right. You come and tell me afterwards. So 13 years from now, when I preach this again, I'll get it right then. All right. But we've read on ahead. That's right, Eric. That's right. We've read on ahead. And we know that the person that Jesus is, I mean, that John is talking about in these first five verses of your Bible is Jesus. We know that. And so I'm going to assume that, although it'll be next Sunday when we make that really, really clear. But I'm going to assume that for this morning that you understand that John is, is, is using suspense. He's, he's using... He's not identifying specifically who he's talking about until later on in the first chapter, but we know who it is. It's Jesus. So with that in mind, John is going to make seven assertions about Jesus that I want you to grab hold of. Who is the Lord Jesus? Who, what do we know about him? What is he like? Well, in these five verses that I read you, John is going to make seven claims about Jesus, and I want you to understand them all, and I want you to get them, and I want you to believe them so that believing you might have eternal life. Number one is this, Jesus is eternal John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And if you know your Bibles, if you've been following Jesus, if you've ever read your Old Testament, you, you know the ring of those words. They're the very words of the very first chapter, of the very first verse, of the very first book in your Bible. Genesis 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In the beginning, before there was anything else, God did it. That's what Genesis 1-1 says. John says, at the beginning, before God created anything else, the Word was. The Word was in existence way back then. And so what John is clearly saying by allusion is that Jesus was present when God made the universe in all that is. John is clearly implying that Jesus is eternal before the beginning. Now, Jesus was conceived in Mary and born of Mary in an actual moment of time in history, but that was not the beginning of Jesus. That, that's what John wants to communicate to you. Though Jesus was born, according to Matthew and according to Luke, to Mary and Joseph, conceived by God, though that is all true, John is telling us Jesus existed before all of that, before the beginning of anything. Jesus was the Word. He existed way back then. Now, people have contested this from the very beginning. Arius was one of the first. Uh, Modern-day Jehovah Witnesses reject what John says. They say that Jesus is a created being. He's a little God. He's a lesser God, but he's the first created thing that God ever created the first created person that God ever created. But that, listen, listen clearly, that is not what John is saying. So believe what you may, but if you're going to believe what the Bible says, the Bible says that before God created anything, Jesus was, the word was. Now, the second thing, Jesus is God's communication. He is God's 
Revelation, he's God's word. John starts his book by calling Jesus the word. Now, the Greek word, for those of you that have been in the church, you know this, but the Greek word, translated word, there's the word logos, or logos, however you want to say it, has a range of meaning. It could mean a word, it could mean a speech, it could mean a logical progression of thought. Here's an interesting observation, though. Only John uses that word to describe Jesus. Only John. He does it in three different places. He does it here. He does it in 1 John. At the beginning and opening of his letter, which we call 1 John, he says, what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we've seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and touched with our hands concerning the logos of life concerning the word of life. And then again in Revelation 19, verse 11, John sees the culmination of all things when Jesus returns. And he says, I saw heaven open and behold a white horse and he who sat on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and wages war. I'm gonna skip verse 12, verse 13 he says, he is clothed, that rider on the white horse is clothed with a robe dipped in blood and his name is called the word of God, the logos of God. God. So why Logos? Think about this for a minute. Why did John say in the beginning was the word? Why didn't John say in the beginning was the lamb and the lamb was with God and the lamb was God? Or why didn't he say in the beginning was the son and the son was with God and the son was God? Or how about this one? In the beginning was the savior and the savior was with God and the Savior was God. Why did, he, why, why did he choose Logos? You know, I, I, don't have an, I don't have an answer, but I think there is something that John wants to communicate by choosing that word, okay? In Revelation chapter 19, remember I just said this, that he saw Jesus with this thing written across his chest, the word of God. Maybe he's writing this after the Revelation of 19, and he's choosing to call Jesus the word of God because that's what he saw on Jesus in that vision. Maybe that's why he chose that. But in verse 18, a verse we're not going to get to today, John says this, no man has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the father, he has explained him to us. I think the reason why John chose the word logos is because it best represents what John is trying to say to us. And that is that Jesus is the Word, the revelation, the, the, the message, the speech, the oration from God so that we might know God. Have you ever said something like this? Boy, I really wish that God would just speak to me just once. My wife's laughing because I think every one of you said something like that. Here's what you mean by that. You mean, I just wish I could hear an audible voice from God with, with my physical ears. I wish I could just hear his voice, and, and then I would believe. Here's what I want to say to you. God has clearly spoken to each and every one of us, maybe not in the way we'd like, maybe the way we want, but he has chosen and he has spoken to us in Jesus. Jesus is the logos, the communication, the speech of God so that we might know who God is. Paul would, Paul would agree with John. Paul would say Jesus was the exact representation of the invisible God. And, and then the author of Hebrews, and we don't know who it is, but he starts his letter like this. God, after he spoke long ago into the fathers, to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us 
the Logos of God. That's not in there. I'm putting that in there. Spoken to us in his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. You want to know how God has spoken to us in these days? It's in his son. The Lord Jesus is the communication of God. Number three, Jesus is separate from God. In the verse, the first verse, in the beginning was the word. You know, from eternity past, there was this communication from God, and the word was with God. Before the creation, the word of God was with God. In, in just two verses, in just the next verse, he says, he was with God. The personal pronoun that's used there tells us now, for the first time, two verses, he tells us that the word of God is a person. He was with God. He's a person. And, and, so, and so John, in these, in these first words of his, of his book, he indicates that the word is separate and distinguishable from God. Now, I might just throw in the word father there because of what we know with further revelation, but he's distinguishing him from God in some form or fashion. He's a separate person. He was there with God, but he's different from God. In just a few simple but profound words, John offers us the first glimpse of the Trinity. He offers us what we have come to understand, and that is that, that God is one, and yet he is three distinct, separable persons. They are not the same person, and yet they are one. And I know that's hard to understand, to, to, to grab hold of the, of the concept of this triune nature of God, that he's one, yet three distinct persons, you know, and I'm not going to try to explain it. There's lots of explanations out there, lots of illustrations to help you grab hold of that, but that's how God chose to reveal himself. But the one thing that has blessed me, and, and I, find it in this, I find it in this text, and in this text, it, uh, it, here, here's, what, here's what this tells me, that God has always been in this relationship. That's what we believe, right? There's one God, three persons, always in relationship. God is doing what God is doing because he wants to create creatures like us, mortal creatures who now will die without him. He wants to create mortal creatures that he is going to invite into this relationship that he himself has always had. I, I don't know if that floats your boat or not, but that lights me up to think that the eternal God, this, this uncreated being who's always been, cared enough about you and me, his little creations, to say, man, I want to make you, and then I want to invite you into this relationship with me that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit have always shared. I'm telling you, that is so excited, exciting. But, but don't, let's not miss the point. There is a sense in which Jesus is separate from God. So let's review. He's eternal. He, he's eternal. He is, uh, oh, I done forgot. That he's the communication of God. Thank you. And he is separate from, from, the God, from God. But now, in, in this, he's what he says next. Jesus is God. In the span of 17 words, in what we call the first verse of the first chapter of John's Good News, he tells his readers that though Jesus is separate from God, Jesus is God. Jesus is God. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, okay? In verse 2, he's going to say he was with God. He's a person, and the Word was God. And this, and this is the root, this is the core, this is the bedrock, this is the all-encompassing 
center of our Christian faith. Jesus is God. If there's ever one point that's ever attacked in our Christian faith, this is it, that Jesus is not God. The Jehovah Witnesses say Jesus is not God. He's a God. He's a little God. He's created by the God, but he's not the God. Jesus, John says Jesus is the God. The Mormons say Jesus is the spirit brother of Lucifer. You know, and then they they reject another bedrock claim of biblical Christianity, and that is that there is one God and only one God. Non-religious people attack this just as adamantly as religious people. And they say there is no God, but if there is a God, Jesus isn't he. Person I love dearly said that those very words to me. There may be a higher power, I don't know, but I can tell you this Jesus is not God. John affirms and says to us this morning, you want to know who Jesus is? Jesus is God. And you can do just like, just like uh, C.S. Lewis said. I mean, you can spit on him, reject him, but don't patronize him because he doesn't give us that alternative. Jesus is God. That was the claim that John makes, and it's the claim that Jesus made. In John chapter 8, verse 56, Jesus is having a discussion with the Pharisees and the religious people of his day. And he says, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. I think Abraham saw Jesus by faith, but regardless, verse 57. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old, and and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Now the import of what Jesus said most likely escapes most of us because it's written in English, it's not in Hebrew, and we are not Jews. But, But But here's what Jesus said before Abraham was, I am Yahweh. I am God. And they understood it really, really clearly. And they picked up stones. In John chapter 10, verse 33, two chapters later, Jesus would say to them, for what good work am I doing that you're trying to kill me? And he says, not for any good works do you do that we try to kill you. We're trying to kill you. We're going to stone you because you being a man, make yourself out to be God. I mean, everybody understood what Jesus was claiming, and everyone who is willing understands the claims of John 1.1. Number five, Jesus is creator. Jesus is creator. All things, verse 3 says, were created through him and apart from him. Not one thing was created that has been created. John then asserts something that Paul affirms in Colossians. Jesus is the person who created all things because he existed before all things. He created all things and all those things submit to him because he is their creator. In Colossians 1.15, here's what Paul wrote. He says, the son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Now listen, firstborn doesn't mean the first created. It means firstborn is an idiom, a Jewish idiom for the one who is over all. So Jesus is the one who is over all creation. Why? Verse 16, for in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Jesus is the creator of everything that is, because John says, let me read it again, nothing has been created that wasn't created by him. 
Jesus is the creator of all things. Now, so here's what this means. Now, follow me. Here's what this means. Who did the speaking of Genesis 1-1? Who said, let there be the heavens and the earth? Who, who divided the water from the land? Who, who put the stars in the sky? Listen, everybody, it was Jesus who did that. He did it because he existed in the beginning, before the beginning ever came about. Jesus is the one who did all of that. Who took Adam's rib and fashioned it into a woman? It was Jesus. Jesus did that. Now, I, I don't mean a pre, I don't mean that necessarily even that, Je I don't know how Jesus walked with, I, and here, it doesn't say this, but it just, it's obvious, is it not, that if Jesus is the creator of all of those things, he's the one that walked with Adam and Eve in the garden? Now, did he take on a, a physical form? Did, did he walk with Adam and Eve in a way that we don't understand? I, I, I don't know, but it's Jesus who's walking with that. He made them, and now he's walking with them in the Garden of Eden. One of the arguments for the existence of God is called the cosmological argument. Here's how it most often is rendered. It says, in our universe, whatever begins to exist has a cause. In other words, natural law in our universe goes like this. Whatever is had a cause. The universe began to exist. Therefore, the universe had a cause because it's part of this. Therefore, there must be an uncaused creator outside of our universe who is beginningless, changeless, immaterial, timeless, spaceless, and infinitely, infinitely powerful. And John contends that Jesus, the itinerant rabbi who walked all over Israel for three years, is that beginningless creator. That one who had no beginning, who has no end. John is telling you that's who that is. But John is not finished with his description of Jesus before Bethlehem. He goes on, Jesus is life. In verse 4, he says, in him was life. There's a scientific principle that says only life begets life. Life does not come from nothing. And indeed, scientists, as hard as they try, they haven't been able to create life. Why? Because life is in God. Life is a gift of God. Life is, life is what God does, and no one else can do it. And so Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. I give life. When, when, when Jesus created Adam, so I want, you to, I want you to get this picture. Jesus created Adam. Maybe he had him laid out on a nice flat stone. But if you and I had walked up to Adam, we would have said, there's a dead person. There's a corpse. There's a lifeless person right here. And the Bible says God created Adam like that. And then he says that the God came and he breathed life. He generated life in Adam. And he gave life to Adam's dead body that was not living. Death is the opposite of that. Death is the removing of life from that creature. It is the removing of the breath of life, it says in Ecclesiastes. 
Adam lost immortality in the garden for himself and for all of us. And it is the wages of Adam's sin and the wages of our sin that brings about our death. The breath of life will leave every single one of us. God removed the tree of life so that we could not live forever. Jesus as creator gave us life. And and Jesus, the father, the spirit, God as righteous judge took it away. But as a loving creator, he would become as his creatures to give us the possibility of restoring our lives and living forever. John, I think it was you on Tuesday breakfast. You, well, it wasn't you. It was Marshall. Somebody said, man, think about how absurd it is what we believe. That God will one day regenerate our, our lives and give us life again. He'll raise us from the dead. Long after our bodies have dissolved to the dust of the earth, he will bring us back and he will give life to our our decayed, having gone away bodies and he'll restore our lives to us. John chapter 11, verse 23, since Shep died, this, I mean, this is always a great verse for me, but this has become so important to me. Martha is arguing with Jesus, if you would. She's, She's telling him how disappointed she is in him for not coming back to save her brother. And Jesus says to her, your brother will rise again. And Jesus told her, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at that day, at that last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Why? Because I am life. That's where life comes from. I give life. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. But you, do you believe this, Martha? Yes, Lord, she said. I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe you're the anointed king, the son of God who comes into the world. Jesus is life. Jesus and Jesus alone created life. And Jesus is the one who's going to restore life to us even after the wages of sin have brought about our death. And finally, I know I'm out of time. Jesus is light. In these opening verses, John identifies Jesus as life and then also as light. The term light appears 21 times in John's gospel. Jesus is the light of men. Twice Jesus calls himself the light of the world. In verse 4, Jesus says, or John says, the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overpower it. From the fall of men, from the fall of man, from the fall of Adam forward, men have turned away from the light of God, the light revealed in creation, the light revealed in Christ. Men turn away from it. All of us fall short of the glory of God. Most men and most women go further, and they seek to suppress the light. Instead of humbling themselves and turning to Jesus as their creator, they run from the light, and they try to put it out. And John says, though the Jews of Jesus' day would try to put out the light, they would not overcome the light of Jesus. I, um, I uh, remember pretty clearly, actually, I don't remember when it was, but we were on vacation in Alabama, and we were visiting the caverns with our children. There were some caverns, and we went into the caverns, and we walked way, way down to the bottom of this, and, and I've told this before, but we walked down into the bottom of that, and the guide turned the lights off. And you could not see anything. I mean, nothing, nothing. And then he took one little, I don't remember if it was a cigarette lighter or a match, but he lit one little light. And it didn't matter where you were, the darkness of the cavern could not overcome that light. 
that light overcame the darkness. And, and that is what John is saying about Jesus, that darkness cannot overcome the Lord Jesus. I am the light of the world, Jesus said. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And since Jesus is the word of God, since Jesus is the communication of God, if you follow Jesus and listen to him and obey him, you will walk in that light. Jeremy, from Sunday school, Walk in the light of what we know. Walk in the light of Jesus, and you will be in the light. He is the light of truth. He is the light of God. He is the light of the world. I'm done. John says that before Jesus was ever born in Bethlehem, he existed eternally, and he was with God, and he was actually, he actually was God. And Jesus is the creator of all things, but specifically he created life, us. He gave us life. He is the revelation of God, the light from God to show us truth. There's no story like this. There's no person like the Lord Jesus. There is no savior like him. And John wrote these words so that you and I might believe that we might believe that he's the king, that we might believe that he's the son of God, and that believing we might have life forever. Yeah, that's good. That's good. You and I have a choice this morning, and we can align ourselves with the words of John, or we can suppress the truth. I mean, you, you are all without excuse you have heard the word of God. You are without excuse. And you have, you have two choices this morning. You can suppress the truth. You can ignore it. You can say it's not relevant. You can say it's not true. Many of us live our lives just like that, ignoring the truth of God's word. We aren't faithful to him. Or we can believe and in him have life beyond the grave. And we can believe and we can have abundant life life now. How about you? Will you serve him? Will you love him? Will you worship him with all your heart? Will you, Marvin? I mean, that's a choice all of us have to make. Let's pray. Lord, we believe that your word is powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, Lord, and it just pierces our heart. And I, I know my heart was pierced in the preparation of this, and my heart is pierced in the delivery of it, of it. Lord, I pray that you would pierce all of our hearts by your spirit. Lord, help us not, as C.S. Lewis said, to patronize you with some sort of fluffy whatever, and yet ignore the most serious claims that you made and that you are... You are the son of God. You are God. And that, and that in you we have life and that we can live beyond the grave and we can have life, abundant life, even now. And though we may die, Lord, we will die. We shall live and we shall live forever with you. I thank you this morning for that promise and I thank you for that hope. And I pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Look at me just a moment before we dismiss, and, and here's what I want to say. You know, people, people say often, Pastor Jimmy, why don't y'all give an invitation to come to the front? And we do sometimes, but, you know, the invitation is always there. 
It's right there. The invitation exists today in your heart where you sit for you to say yes to the Lord Jesus, to say, Lord, I'm going to love you. I'm going to trust you. I'm going to follow you. And so I just want to echo the Lord's invitation. Come unto me, all you who are burdened down, and I will give you rest, and I will give you life. So where you sit before you leave this morning, would you, would you turn to Jesus? Would you turn and receive the Lord Jesus in your heart? God bless you, everybody. We are dismissed. Thank you so much for listening this week. If you have any questions, you can email them to Pastor Jimmy at baconscastle.com. Also, check out our website at baconscastle.com to get to know us and see what God is doing here locally in Surrey. Be blessed. Thank you.